Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. All right. Hey, and thanks for listening in to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined by Reverend Dwight Shiley. Did I get that right? That's right. Good, good. Well, uh, Dwight is the Vice President of Innovation and Associate Professor of Congregational Mission and Leadership at Luther Seminary. So welcome to the show. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Right. Um, what would you like our listeners to know about your story and how you got here? Yeah, well, so, um, so I've lived in Minnesota for 15 years, but I grew up on the California coast where the weather's a little milder. Yeah. And um, although not right now with these fires, yeah. but, but, um, but I grew up in a, I grew up in a secular home um, and in, in many ways, a cultural environment that is, I think now increasingly common in other parts of the country as well, mm-hmm. where it's really, you know, it's really an environment where, you know, you, you're, you're really kind of, you write your own story. You, you sort of make up your own um, path rather than, you know, really being grounded in, in kind of community and tradition in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so for me growing up outside the church, um, you know, I, I found Christianity or God found me, the gospel found me when I was a young adult and in a ways that were really turned my life upside down and, and were incredibly healing and transformational. And so, so mm-hmm. the work that I do is to try to help the church connect with neighbors like me or others who are, you know, yeah. living in our society today and a society, I think that's um, there, where there's ample despair, confusion, anxiety, fear, and division. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a lot of our inherited church structures are carrying this most amazing treasure of the gospel in ways that don't necessarily connect with where people are at. And so, um, so I'm trying to help the church and help theological education make, bridge some of those gaps in, in a you know, pretty interesting time to be alive. Well, I'm, I'm so excited. I was telling uh, Dwight before we started, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, so. Well, let's just, if I can jump right in there, like, what does it mean? Uh, you're the director of innovation at a, at a, at a mainline seminary. Um, what does that look like? So, you know, Luther Seminary has been around 150 years. Yeah. And um, if you look at that history, you know, it has adapted c- continually, right, as the context has changed along the way. And, um, but in recent years, you know, this, the speed of, of a change in our society and in the church has really pushed us as a seminary to, um, to, to try to adapt even more. And our board embraced a vision back um, three years ago, actually this fall, mm-hmm. that the Holy Spirit calls Luther Seminary to lead faithful innovation for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a mm-hmm. rapidly changing world. Now, of course, that was before COVID. We right, didn't know how right. rapidly the world would end up changing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and we weren't really organized, you know, for for that. Um, and so my position and the team that I lead um, was was created really to give some organizational space to some experiments. And 
and we're doing a bunch of experiments. So one of them is a accelerated 24 month MDiv program oh, called the yeah. MDiv X. Yeah. And um, so we've got our second of, of three cohorts, um, pilot cohorts um, in that um, and it's going really well so far. But a lot of our innovation work has actually been with um, non-degree programs. So either in mm -hmm. lifelong learning, continuing education, yeah, or really in resources and engagement with the church. So, and the shift for us has been to say, you know, rather than that, you know, the seminary, uh, we're up on a hill in St. Paul on this, you know, nice campus. We wait for the church to sort of send us people, yeah. we kind of turn them into pastors and we send yep. them back out and they get deployed in the system. Um, is to say, no, 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 the future that God's bringing forth um, for the church and for theological education is more and more emerging out on the edges, out of the grassroots, out in the margins. So we as a seminary need to have a different posture. We need to take a posture of, of accompaniment and of learning and of joining in and connecting some of those um, grassroots communities and leaders and innovations in ways that we can both learn from it and what we're doing is we educate leaders for Christian communities, but we can also amplify and support um, some of that innovation and adaptation that's going on out there at the grassroots. So, um, so I get to work with some just amazingly gifted teams of faculty and staff who are um, doing a bunch of things. We have a, a, a digital learning hub called FaithLead mm -hmm. that we launched a couple of years ago. That's just been uh, growing tremendously. Um, we have, um, you know, 37,000 subscribers now and, wow. um, you know, over a quarter of a million page views in the last, um, and this year so far to date. And so, um, and a lot of that is, you know, it's, it's sharing digital resources. It's, um, learning, um, together, connecting leaders into learning communities, digital courses and events, and just a whole sort of platform, private social network for ministry leaders okay. to connect together, um, and uh, we've we've been doing a lot of experiments so it's it's i have, i think i have the mo most fun job in theological education actually <laughs> it's a blast yeah i love hearing that about experimentation because i think that's what's so can be so hard in mainline context is that because resources are dwindling and we feel this pressure of scarcity that it's like we're scared to take chances because we we can't feel like we can't whiff exactly we can't swing and miss but i'm i'm jumping ahead here so i, I feel like i need to to ask first, like you mentioned kind of how your past and growing up in a, in a non-Christian home, as I heard it, kind of kind of spoke to your desire to be innovative. So do you mind just kind of sharing about like what that path of following Jesus has meant for you and how that developed? Yeah. So, you know, so I would say, you know, in the, in the home I grew up in, the, the core story was um, you have to work really hard to prove yourself mm -hmm. and you have to work really hard to improve the world. And, um, and I think by the time I got to high school or even later in high school, um, you know, I was, I had become pretty cynical um, because it was all up to me. Now, of course, later I would learn what Martin Luther talks about as works righteousness. Right? Yeah. This is really what it was. Of course that any of that would have meant, you know, made, made no sense to me. Um, what, where I was growing up, but, right. um, but, but the sense of, uh, that burden of having to, you know, to justify yourself, um, and to go, to go it kind of uh, on your own in that sense and to make up your story and, and to even really to kind of craft your own identity, which is, mm -hmm. I think very much an, a, a cultural expectation now in late modern Western societies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that was, that was for me a, a crushing 
kind of um, burden. And I didn't have a lot of, of hope, I think. Um, and I also didn't have a lot of grounds for, I think, forgiveness for me and my own, for my own self or for others or for, mm -hmm. um, for society. And, and had, didn't have a lot of hope that, that some of the, the painful kind of estrangements and divisions in the world and society that I saw would ever be healed. So for me, encountering the gospel of Jesus Christ was to enter into and find myself in a much more expansive, um, life-giving story where um, you don't have to make it up yourself. And I mm -hmm. learned that I had an identity that was a sheer gift and there was nothing I could do that, to earn that identity mm -hmm. or to lose it um, as a child of God. And, and, and experiencing that freedom and that grace, that unconditional promise in, in Christ, mm -hmm. then, you know, freed me to be able to, to live differently and to, and to love others because I knew that love in Christ. And so, um, so for me, it really was a matter of life and death. Wow, that's a beautiful story. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, has there been a spiritual practice that you've developed through the years or would recommend others that's been meaningful to you? Yeah. So, you know, there's one practice that I learned um, from some of, of my my teachers and colleagues at Luther Seminary um, called Dwelling in the Word that I've, I think is the single most transformational spiritual practice I've seen in congregations. And it's a simple way of engaging scripture in community. It draws on the old traditions of Lexio Divina. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, it's simply get, get a biblical text, not too long, not too short. Um, listen to the text together in community and, and just invite people to, to ponder, you know, what catches your imagination in the text? Mm. What word or phrase grabs hold of you? Or what question does the yeah. text bring to your mind? And then, and in community, then you pair people up, preferably with a reasonably friendly looking stranger, <laughs> someone who's, who you don't know particularly well. Yeah. And e each person gets a couple minutes to share what caught their imagination or what they wondered about in the text. But, but here's the kicker. Um, when the group re comes back together, you're responsible for sharing with the larger group or invited to share with the larger group, not what you heard, but what yeah. your partner said. Yeah. Which That's is hard, right. right? Right, yeah. And that's really actually like a transformational piece. Yeah, because yeah. what it does is that it actually disrupts so many of the things, the cultural expectations we have in late modernity where, you know, everyone's got their own private, you know, interpretation right. of scripture. Right. Um, and, but I'm now accountable, if we're doing it together, to actually give public voice to what you hear. And mm -hmm. you can correct me if I get it wrong, right? Yeah. Um, and I have to, that means I really need to lean in and listen. And, um, and there's no expert in the room. Hmm. Um, questions for biblical scholars are always, you know, this great when they surface, but they don't always try to get resolved. And it's a practice that, in my experience, deepens the community's capacity to listen to scripture, to listen to God, to listen to each other, and then ultimately to listen to their neighbors outside the church. Hmm. That's great. That's a great one. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I want to jump in because uh, I'm excited to talk about this. Um, Dwight wrote an article almost a year ago as we we're recording this um, titled, Will the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, be gone in 30 years? And you start off by giving some data and statistics and projections. 
um, kind of how, you know, like, like most mainline denominations, there's a lot of, you know, it's troubling. There's a lot of negative, negative, uh, what's the, is it the X or the Y graph? <laughs> I always forget that. It's sliding the wrong way, as we want to say. Um, so I want to talk through some of those things. And, and you talk about kind of some of these root causes. And the first one I think that I found so interesting is you talk about living in a culture in, in the modern West that makes it so hard for people to imagine and be led by God. Um, and the thing that comes to me, and I'm curious if this is kind of what you had in mind or you're thinking something else, but the idea of like our modern cosmology, or I don't know if that's the right word, maybe postmodern cosmology, but I think of songs like, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with the, the old song by Rich Mullins, Our God is an Awesome God. And if you, if you know the words, the lyrics of that song, it's like God is up in heaven, like with fire and lightning. And I, I, I know I, the, I'm serving a church that's a new church start. And that's one of the things I said, like, you know, I have three broad rules for songs. And one is like, it has to reflect like a modern cosmology. And even as I listen to kind of like uh, evangelical music today, and certainly there's a case in hymns, like I wonder, does this cosmology of this ancient cosmology, does it, is that part of the problem? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, well, so, so let me just back up a minute. I want to get into the cosmology question. Yeah, let me yeah. just back up a minute on, on kind of how this article came about. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so we at the seminary, we got our hands on some, some data that was produced by the denominational office where one of the statisticians, the researchers um, did the simplest thing, which was just take, you know, their, the worship and um, membership data and in Excel, just do the forecast function, mm -hmm. right? This is the simplest for it. So if we just play out the trends, yeah. where does this go? And, and it's a picture of actual extinction basically yeah. within a generation. So you know, we often talk about, you know, mainline decline and all that stuff, but, but actually we're at the point now where we're talking about demise or, right. or you know, right. or, or actually going out of business. And so, so, um, so we got permission to make this public, you know, in this blog post and um, as a way to, to spark the conversation. Now, I think the, the, the institutional decline narrative is, is well-worn, right. nothing new in that. Right. Um, but I'm always, I'm more curious about what's underneath that. Mm -hmm. You know, what are the, what's the massive generational shift taking place that accounts for this? And that's where I think the questions of culture are actually really important and mm -hmm. cosmology is one of them. So, yeah. You know, so in the in the modern the modern West um, made a wager, uh, we might call it modernity's wager, um, to follow Adam Seligman um, his his concept that you can live a good life without God. Yeah, and so you know, I, whether it be um, Charles Taylor in his work, a secular age, or a variety of people have written on this. That you know, Taylor asks, why was it five hundred years ago almost impossible? to not believe in God in, mm -hmm. the, in the West, right? Where if you didn't believe in God, you would have a statue made of you or you'd be, <laughs> you would be, you know, executed, right? Yeah. You'd, be, yeah. you'd be burned at the stake because it was just, just unimaginable to a point now where belief in God is just one among many options mm -hmm. and people seek the good without reference to God. And so I think for the church, this is, um, this is complex because I think largely many churches have basically adopted that functionally secular worldview yeah. without a lot of reflection on it. And so mm -hmm. this could be either, you know, in the mainline world, um, if you, if you listen to the language of mainline 
congregations, whether it be their meeting, how they conduct their meetings. You mm-hmm. talk to people. Um, there's, it's rare that God is the subject of an acting active verb, right? Yeah, acting right. Subject of a verb, um, and because the church has become highly secularized, and the same right. thing in in some ways in evangelical spaces where again there's often more language about God doing this in my life or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you, but if you look at all the sort of church growth kind of you know uh, methodologies and sort of adoption of secular business strategies and all that, yep. and it and it still default tends to default to modernity's wager that it's really up to us and it's human agency. We can grow the church. We can, you know, gather a bunch of believers and, or we can do this out of the other. And, and so the, so the agency of, of the triune God tends to be eclipsed. And this is, um, this is a huge, huge challenge, right? Mm. Because if people believe, you know, you can live a good life without God and the church functions as if that's actually the case, then we've lost our core story. Hmm. Well, that's, so what's that's deep. Yeah. Well, so, so in what's I think particularly interesting about the moment we're in now is that it's, you know, it's again, it's not so much that everyone's atheist or agnostic, you know, yeah. if you look at um, most Americans actually are, do believe in God and they're spiritually curious. Right. And, um, and so it's not just that it's kind of totally secularized. It's rather that there's, we live in this world of, you know, Charles Taylor talks about the supernova of spiritual options and Mm -hmm. belief is always fragilized by doubt. So, you you know, believers sometimes doubt, Mm -hmm. um, but doubters also sometimes believe, have experiences of the transcendent or being caught up short by something or um, a sense of the numinous. I mean, I can think of, um, you know, a quick story, my sister who grew up in the same, you know, families I did and yeah. um, didn't be, didn't become a Christian like I did, went on a different path. She's a beautiful person. And, um, yeah. and, but she's not a, she, she described herself as spiritual, not, but not religious. Right, but right. a couple of years ago, there was this full eclipse um, that came through total eclipse that came through mm-hmm. um, the U S and she and her husband drove where they live um, in Oregon up, you know, got up early in the morning and drove out to this place in the high desert and experienced the total eclipse. Mm-hmm. And she, she called me and she, she was just kind of speechless mm. at, at the wonder and the awe of this experience. Mm. And she, for me, my, what I was hearing in my mind was she just yeah. experienced the glory of God. Right? Now, yeah. Of course she wouldn't say it that way. Right. 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 But, but she's very open. Um, to the spiritual and the sacred in certain ways. She's not going to church, right? Yeah. And more and more people are in that, right. that boat. So, right. so we, we have this paradox of this world in which people go about their daily lives as if God is not active. And they're also curious, open, and caught up short sometimes by experiences of the sacred. So this is another point you make in the article, and you're kind of leading into it here, that like we're, sh- if I can use this language, we're shooting ourselves in the foot by not being distinct about what it means to be Christian. Yes. Yes. So when we lose our story, you know, I, I think a lot of mainline congregations mm-hmm. are predominantly social and cultural institutions. Yeah. So if you ask people kind of, if you really listen to kind of why they're there, they'll say, They'll talk about, well, th- th- this is my, these are my people. This is where I find community. 
right? And, and that's wonderful. Or they'll say, you know, we, I really love this certain experience of, you know, this, the music that we have here or the kind of the cultural traditions of worship or, or rituals or architecture or, yeah. or, or, or it could be like, you know, the ELCA often there's a, you know, in many denominations coming out of the state churches of Europe, there's a kind of ethnic tribalism, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, Lutheran church is normed around a kind of, you know, Scandinavian or German right. you know, ethnic identity. Um, and, and so, you know, and all that is, there's nothing wrong with those things. Like it's, you know, that's fine, but it, it's not actually very distinctive. It's not, it's not something that translates mm-hmm. because you, to ask your neighbors who don't share that cultural heritage yeah, yeah. or who don't share that way of being, you know, finding community mm-hmm. to join doesn't make any sense, right? Because <laughs> yeah. they're not, they're not going to be interested. Um you know, and so so that's in part accounting, I think, for this massive generational sort of abandonment of the church or disconnect um, for those older generations for whom those inherited ways of doing things have been very meaningful. Like that's great, and they that should be honored, but um, but it's not. It doesn't have a future in many places, mm-hmm. and so the the gospel is inherently translatable. That's part of the nature of Christianity and the incarnation, and so. Um, so if we aren't clear on what, well, what is actually at stake in that story or yeah. how is, what does it mean to be the body of Christ in our moment? Or what, what is, what, the way we talk about it, Luther now is what difference does Jesus make yeah. in everyday life? So you, you use that word, what does it mean? And, and that's one of the points in the article, like we have to make meaning for people. Um, and you, and you have this in your article, you have this, this graph kind of, talking about that lays out like how faith has really like career had become more meaningful for people's lives than faith. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts and how do you, how do we better create meaning uh, for people around faith and spirituality? Yeah. So this comes from a really fascinating study that the Pew Research Center did a couple of years ago where they asked Americans where they where they found meaning in life. Yeah. And you know the by far the number one was family, 69%. Yeah. Career 34%, money 23%. So money and career being second and then um, faith and spirituality was only 20%. Hmm. Now for those for whom um, they who named faith and spirituality it was it was quite important to them. Sure. But for you know for most people it wasn't really at all. And so so the question becomes, you know, how does how does the Christian story or how do the practices of the faith actually help you make meaning, at, construct meaning out of your experience? Mm-hmm. How do they give you a, an interpretive lens for what happens? So you think about right now, for instance, in our society where there's the pandemic, right. there's social unrest, mm-hmm. there's um, continuing, you know, ongoing economic displacement and right. technological change and, and a lot of just sort of ongoing disruption that's taking place. What, what, how do we make sense? How do we interpret that? How do we put, make meaning to it? Cause we are meaning making creatures. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not optional. Right. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, to be able to use biblical stories, for instance, or frameworks mm-hmm. uh, or theological frameworks to be able to, to understand what we're going through um, is, you know, is very powerful. And I think a lot of churches have struggled to help their members do this yeah, um, because that hasn't been the primary focus 
of church life necessarily, or it's, it's assumed it's, it's happening when I think in many cases it probably isn't happening very deeply. Can you give me an example of what, um, what that might look like providing a theological framework for COVID for instance? Yeah, well, exactly. So, yeah, right. So, so even just to take, um, you know, well, let me just even begin even without COVID more broadly, but just, just the experience I think of uncertainty and suffering yeah, that yeah. people are going through right now. Um, you know, it's, it's delving into something like the lament Psalms. So here's a quick story from, this is actually from the great recession from a, um, a congregation, a Lutheran congregation in Minnesota yeah. um, in a exurban area where a lot of people had, had moved, had, had bought homes mm-hmm. before the, the housing market crashed mm-hmm. and, and they found themselves bankrupt, uh, foreclosed, um, mm-hmm. and they lost their jobs. And there were some folks in that church that gathered in a local coffee shop and began to read together the lament psalms. Interesting. As a way, uh, as a and for, to pray those together and support each other as a way to make meaning, Christian meaning, out of what they were actually experiencing. You know that they could actually lament and call out to God and say, you know, life sucks. Yeah. You know, this is really hard, right? right. And shake their fists. God and my enemies surround me, you know, and you know, the enemy set a, a snare for me and all of this. Yeah. Um, but then to remember God's faithfulness and, you know, like so many of those Psalms to, to work through that to, to a point of praise at the end and also to do that in community. Um, so it's, it's how do we find stories that can give our lives um, uh, an anchor of, of meaning um, a depth of grounding and um, in which we can face the mystery and the ambiguity of experience while um, recognizing we're part of a larger story that we didn't actually write up ourselves, but have, have inherited and, and are, are claimed by, um, you know, that biblical story and the story of, of the faith. That's so interesting. Cause I'm thinking of when you talk about a group of people meeting together uh, reading through those Psalms a little bit, thinking about it almost in terms of the battle. Like there's so many right now, I feel like correct evangelical worship songs, but that's like almost literally the language of it's a battle. God is fighting with me. And I think maybe this is too harsh, but I think mainliners would be very loath to kind of adapt and appropriate that language. But clearly for many, many people, it's resonating I mean, whether it's fair or not, like there's many people right now who feel like they're in a battle for their lives, right? During yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think the reality of evil and the reality of suffering, um, they're undeniable. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that that the ability to sort of name a thing for what it is, you know, Martin mm-hmm. Luther talks about that quite a bit. Um, to call a thing what it is. And, um, and, and to, to name, you know, to name the real struggles that exist in life and all the forces that do resist human flourishing, both yeah. within us personally, um, and also beyond us in, in society and our families and, and, and structures and all of that I, all around, like that's for real. And so I think we're still, I think in particularly the mainline congregations mm-hmm. and denominations, a uh, inheritors of an enlightenment myth, that, yeah, yeah. You know, there really is no such thing as sin. It's just right. kind of ignorance. And if right. we have the right education, it'll go away. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, as much as that myth has 
been dashed on the rocks of history over and over again. It still persists. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love this. I love this conversation. Like I thought it was gonna be like about like church growth and like data and statistics, and like theology. I love it. You're just diving into these foundational things that are so important. Well, so I, I think that's actually really important because because the church has largely responded to the, the institutional decline in a managerial way, as if this uh, yeah. is an organizational problem. And I'm, mm. I would argue it's not an organizational problem. Wow. I mean, there's yes, there's massive organizational problems that are there, yeah. but yeah. the primary problem is actually theological. And unless you get deep into the to um, to claiming and a theological narrative that is life-giving, that gets embodied in practice, right, in a community, um, the, all the organizational stuff is, is really irrelevant. So most professional Christians I know, most church leaders, mm-hmm. clergy, denominational executives, staff, all those people, um, seminary people, you know, are, are really focused on managing the institution. Right. And are, are often, I think, missing what, you know, what is actually the core work. Um, which is is doing this this spiritual work and this work of of rediscovering and actually articulating in ways that people can understand what difference Jesus makes actually mm. in everyday life in today's world. Correct me if this is too simple, but in some sense, what I'm hearing is like we've got to tell a better story. Yeah, we have to tell. We have the best story in the world <laughs> we, <gotta tell> it <laughs> we better? have to tell it yeah we have to tell it better we have to tell it better to our own people in ways that help them rediscover it and uh-huh. live into it um and then to be able to tell it to our neighbors and you know we're out of practice at doing that you know i think the mm-hmm. so one of the things i talk about in that article is a shift from a performative model yeah. of ministry to yeah. more of a formative or participatory one and so the performative model is you know look we've inherited the expectation that, you know, in, in many congregations, you know, if you're, if you're a member of that congregation, you, you show up on Sundays in a dedicated building for some rituals led by professional Christians. Right. You mostly passively kind of, you know, consume. participate in those, consume, and, and then you support it institutionally with your time, talent, and treasure, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so I've done this exercise with, with groups of pastors and, and, and church leaders bishops and things where we've asked them like so what are the expectations that pastors have on them and there's always a long list you know it's mm-hmm. all this stuff that pastors have to do and then we say and what are the expectations that your congregation places on its lay members yeah and it's typically a much shorter list yeah. <laughs> and it's mostly focused on supporting the congregation institutionally yeah it's not about the expectation is you will grow into deep discipleship and, mm-hmm. you know, be able to translate that discipleship into your neighborhood and, you know, bless your neighbors and invite them into discipleship or, or Christian witness or whatever. It's, it's, um, it's much thinner. So I think we've, we've, you know, this is the kind of old clerical problem, but we've professionalized ministry. And the, the thing about the performative model is that we live now in a participatory culture. Right. And people don't want to show up and just consume yeah. that kind of thing, it, particularly emerging generations. They want to be part of co-creating and questioning and um, and, and, and in, being in, in discussion and conversation. And, and that's a, a real shift. So, so if ministry is about performing faith for people mm-hmm. rather than helping people be formed in the faith, um, it's not going to get us where we need to go. I, I would think there are some instances where it is what cons- consumeristic, but the idea 
and you correct me if, if you do disagree, but that's where like, it's like a mega church with just an incredible production where people will come and just consume, or even in, in a more traditional mainline context where there's just an incredible choir and amazing architecture and more, I would think where people are more willing to come consume that. But if it's just like a small church with terrible <laughs> below average music and, you know, subpar preaching, then it's, it's going to be harder to get some traction there. Yeah. Yeah, well, so and I think both ways, because there's certainly a, you know, the kind of megachurch version of this, right. which is all a big show. And then there's right. also the kind of, there are the traditional, you know, high church versions of that as well, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But but I think the turn is more toward grassroots practices. So, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah. um, so my wife and I were both Episcopal priests. She's a full-time pastor, senior pastor of a church in St. Paul. And one of our experiments um, a number of years ago was to say, well, you know, we realized we had never as a congregation articulated a vision for what it meant to follow Jesus. Like what yeah. was the Christian life? What did the Christian life consist of? Yeah. So we did an experiment of trying to articulate that in our context, you know, very specific to our context of some practices to, to begin to put some, some bones on that for people mm-hmm. and then to live into, okay, well, how do we actually operationalize this in daily life? So, if, if one of the practices of following Jesus is simplicity, simplifying and decluttering our lives, whether yeah. it be in terms of time or stuff or, mm. you know, possessions, whatever, right? So how do we live that together? Well, there's no one way to do that, right? right. So in our case, it, it was, we took over what had been our kind of a, adult faith formation, adult form kind of space, which had historically had, Kind of outside ex- interesting experts talking about giving talks on lots of interesting things, you know, and people right. would leave and they'd be like, wow, that was so interesting. Yeah. And no one's life would really change. Right. So, so our experiment was let's make that a space of practice where people can try things out during the week, you know, practices. So I'm going to do a uh, experiment this week on simplifying. I'm going to reserve, you know, a day with no screens or I'm going to, oh. you know, I'm going to take a screen Sabbath or I'm going to d- do fewer appointments or I'm going to, um, I'm going to be generous in tipping, you know, or I'm going to give something mm-hmm. away or I don't know, whatever it is. Right. And then come back and let's talk about it. how did it go? And what did you notice? Where was their life giving energy in that? Mm-hmm. What was hard about it? Right. And it's communal conversation, you know, and, um, and that, that's a very different way to do church. Yeah then, you know, just you come and you sit and you hear this like really polished performance. from Right. I'm curious, and I've been thinking about this um, in my own church setting, the church I'm leading. Like, I don't want to go back to, for one, like I was doing the whole like meeting in in an elementary school setting up, like just from practical purposes. For me, it's exhausting. Even in the building, there's still some, that performative nature you speak to is just exhausting. And I've been thinking about like, how could I do church where it's like, one weekend we volunteer somewhere. One weekend we do a march. One weekend we do some kind of community service project. And I'm, A, is that kind of like, is that kind of in the vein of what you're thinking? And B, like, do you think like, again, is COVID an opportunity? Should churches looking at this as an opportunity to really like reimagine and revamp their ministry styles? Yeah, so I think the the COVID reality of being displaced from our buildings is particularly disruptive to that inherited model of church, the performative model of church, because yeah. it really does take take that away for people. Um, and I think it's a great opportunity to be church distributed, to be church dispersed. Um, and 
And so the question then becomes, well, what does it mean to be church if we're not gathering to do these traditional rituals in the building led by professionals? So, so that's where I, in the article, I talk about going back to basics. Right, right. Where I need to say, I, well, so what is it that Christians do? Well, we gather around scripture mm-hmm. and, you know, read scripture together. We, we, we share, connect our stories to scripture. We pray, um, we, we serve, you know, each other and our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we have community together. You know, it's simple things like that, um, and and the, you know we break bread. Right, those are things Christians have always done in every context. And I think the pandemic invites us to reimagine what that looks like mm-hmm. in today's neighborhood. And I think in a way that is, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm I'm thinking of Luke 10 where Jesus sends out the 70 and he says, you know, don't take any baggage with you. Yeah, when you go into the neighborhood. And the turn toward being hosted in the neighborhood rather than trying to host the neighborhood in our buildings is, is, is a really important turn, right? So Jesus is always doing this in his ministry. He's always yeah. traveling around. He's inviting himself over to people's houses. Mm-hmm. He's, he's in someone's dinner party or another, you know, he's in some public space. Um, the, the turn that I think is, is opening up is how do we join up with neighbors in neighborhood spaces form relationships, l- listen to stories, begin to practice church there. And, you know, one of the most uh, promising ways this is playing out right now is through the Fresh Expressions movement, which, you know, started in the UK in the Church of England um, and is, is spread around the world. Um, Fresh Expressions US is cultivating this in a lot of different denominations and communities, mm-hmm. you know, across across the U.S. But the 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 basic assumption of that is um, that the inherited church is a wonderful gift for those for whom it's meaningful, and most yeah. of our neighbors are never going to join it. So yeah. we need to go into the neighborhood, start small experiments of expressions of Christian community that begin with listening and loving neighbors, mm-hmm. and that can grow into legitimate forms of church. And what they found in the UK, for instance, in this now 15 years in, is that some of the most powerful expressions of church are, are lay led by people who are not formally trained theologically. Interesting. And, and you know, so, um, so you know, just to give you a, a quick story along these yeah, lines, yeah. Um, I, I had a, an opportunity to interview Heather Evans um, this, uh, this last week. Heather Evans is... Um, is a part of a church, United Methodist Church in Florida. And uh-huh. um, she's a school teacher who, um, who lives near one of the largest trailer parks in America, okay. Suncoast Estates. And so she, she and a few people from that church did a small experiment of doing a kind of, you know, Bible school type of thing for some kids in that mm-hmm. trailer park for a period of time, just pretty limited, a couple hours a week. And, and then when that period came to a close, the kids said, oh, we want to keep going. We don't want this to end. Yeah. So they said, okay, well, let's continue that. But, but maybe there might be something else here. And they ended up experimenting with starting um, a dinner church in a center in that trailer park. And, oh. um, and they call it Eat, Pray, Love. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful kind of inversion of Elizabeth Gilbert's, you know, yeah. Eat, Pray, Love book and movie, which is a kind of great example of, sort of narcissism, (laughs) you know, and and this is the opposite of that. So, so in the trailer park, they, um, you know, they, they started small and they simply, you know, gather people, they have, they have provide a meal. Um, They have very simple ways of engaging a story of Jesus and people Mm -hmm. sharing around that. 
and and they break bread and they pray and it's optional if you want to stay for some of that Jesus storytelling or not you're still yeah. welcome to to come yeah. to eat and to pray and um and it and they've had all kinds of baptisms now and there's you know lots of people coming and there are a lot of stories of like this type of thing that are now cropping up more and more places now they're connected to an inherited church kind of a, actually a mega church that's sort of supporting this mm-hmm. but for the people in the trailer park you know heather says they're never going to go to that mega church this yeah. is church for them it's yeah. in their community center and that's yeah. what it needs to be it's contextualized for where they are it's accessible um you don't need all that big fancy building to have church you know and and she's doing amazing work raising up other leaders she's now actually helping to coach pastors on how to do this wow <laughs> which i love and she's a lay person right? yeah doesn't have a theological degree. <laughs> you use the word contextualize, and that's something uh, you use the word translate in this article here. And that's one thing that comes to mind when I think about, you know, the idea of like a dinner church or doing something uh, in some of these different contexts is the inevitable struggle becomes, well, what traditions do we keep? What traditions do we change? What traditions are non-negotiable? And I mean, certainly in my context as a in the Christian church disciples of Christ, we tend to be like a, a somewhat lower church. It really depends on the context uh, of the church, but we still kind of have our kind of like things like obviously communion is our big thing. Certainly in the, in the Lutheran church, there are many traditions, at least as I understand. So what would you say, like how, how do you navigate that? Yeah, so that's a it's a great question. So you know, for me, I my my training is as, as a missiologist, scholar of mission, and mm-hmm. and and if you look at kind of the history of the church and the history of mission, you see this dynamic of when the church is at its most vibrant uh, and flourishing, it is contextualized. In other words, it's incarnate within yeah. a local time and place, and it speaks the language. It um, it adopts and and critically transforms cultural forms from, you know, that context. And that mm-hmm. happened from the beginning of the church all the way up to today. Yeah. And so, and when the church is, is not speaking the language, it's not in the vernacular, if you will, yeah. of wherever its context is, it's going to struggle. And so I think what we have right now is a lot of inherited forms of church that are really contextualized for a different period. I mean, yeah. so like I'm an Episcopalian and we have a lot of tr- beautiful churches that are contextualized for yeah. 100 or 150 or even 300 years ago. Yeah. And they don't they don't speak the language, um, and so they can be there can be a kind of museum quality mm-hmm. to them. Like, wow, this is really peculiar and weird. I mean, I when I first became a Christian, I remember going to worship and and it was like we were singing organ hymns like on a pipe yeah, organ from the, like right. the nineteenth century or earlier. And I was like, nobody listens to this music in their car, <laughs> yeah, right, or on the radio or whatever. But why do we have? Why can't we sing music that's actually in you know, more um, cultural forms that really more fit with where we are today. Now, I love all those old traditions. I'm not mm-hmm. saying we should get rid of them. But but there's a lot of creative work of translation that isn't, that is, that's still culturally and artistically vibrant and rich. I think it's often framed as either it's kind of old fashioned okay. or it's sort of contemporary in ways that I think a lot of mainline people kind of turn up their noses at and say, well, this, this isn't really very right. sophisticated culture. Right. And, um, and I don't think, I don't, I want to refuse those two as the only options. I think okay. that there's way more creativity that we can embrace to um, make the faith come alive in all kinds of cultural forms 
um, today, you know, and, and I think there, we have to do discernment. That's, you know, again, core Christian practice mm-hmm. around what to abandon, what to, um, to continue with, to, to, to carry forward or how to con- carry forward. I think there are, again, things like communion. I'm not going to abandon communion. Like that's yeah. core to being Christian, right? But how we do communion. Well, that's, that leads me into right? a question that as an Episcopal, you were probably following what, I, I don't even know if it's been resolved. So maybe correct me if, correct me on this. Um, certainly in the beginning of COVID, there was a lot of controversy of whether what Episcopals could take communion home without a priest blessing it. So that's, that's an example, right? What, what became of that? Was that resolved? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't think it's been resolved. I think, I think, um, I think it's a, yeah, most places it's, it's not happening. And it's, oh. kind of, I think the sort of largely, um, you know, it, yeah, the kibosh has been put on that, but I think, mm. I think that the, it, it, what's so interesting to me is it is it's it, it really does bring to the surface all these questions of ecclesiology. So yeah. what does it mean to be church? Now, if we're living COVID aside, if we're living in a world in which people are geographically, you know, where geography doesn't matter in the same way, where people are connecting digitally, yeah, and you can go, you can log into whatever church you want, listen right. to whatever sermon you want from anywhere, right? doesn't matter where, where it is. And yet Christianity is also fundamentally an incarnate embodied communal faith. Right. So there's a, there's a sort of interesting tension there. So I think there's all kinds of questions around that, that we have to sort our way, discern our way through. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'm always inclined to sort of wonder about the deeper questions that that get prompted by these kinds of debates mm-hmm. and um, and not to dwell. So I'm, I'm least interested in sort of the, the fix, you know, uh-huh. or the solution in that level. And I'm more interested in is sort of what does this mean about, you know, how we are Christian community in our context and, um, and where is the Holy spirit actually breaking open structures mm. that have been too confining and where we've really missed something really important about the dynamism and creativity of the Christian faith, because the church is always, of course, being reformed, you know, and that's the classic Ecclesia Seminar yeah. Reformanda, yeah. but it's also always forming throughout history. And you look at the growth of the church in, you know, the global South today, mm-hmm. and there's all kinds of incredible creativity and dynamism going on. Um, with a certain amount of freedom in some places that that we don't allow ourselves in Western societies that have such a long tradition and mm-hmm. have such structures that inherited structures that are so dominant and can be so confining. Well, I want to keep asking you questions here, but I got to respect your time. So I really appreciate uh, appreciate your answers here. Well, let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Dr. Dwight Shiley. Did I say that right again? I'm so anxious about saying that wrong. You bet. Um, All right. Well, thanks so much uh, for your time and really enjoying this conversation. These closing questions you can take as seriously or not as you'd like to, but if you were a Pope for a day, uh, what would you like to do that day? (laughs) So if I I had responsibility over, um, you know, kind of the church at a, at a, high level like that um i would i would try to create space for a lot of experiments so 
Um, so in, in my tradition, the Archbishop of Canterbury isn't Pope by any stretch, but is, but is mm-hmm. a, um, a certainly a spiritual leader for Anglican. Right. And um, Rowan Williams, um, the, the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, gave a wonderful speech back in the early 2000s in which he talked about the need for a mixed economy of mm. different forms of church, neighborhood, inherited neighborhood churches that are meaningful to some people, and that's wonderful. But we also need network churches. We need churches that meet people where they're at in the neighborhood. Yeah. And he, he created, he kind of created space for that and legitimacy for that. And I, and I think that needs to take place across the churches broadly, you know, in America, at least in other places today, where we say it's a both and. Um, it's often talked about as a blended ecology as well. We need multiple kinds of expressions or forms of church connect with people where they are today. So, so I would give some kind of, you know, version of speech and, and change rules <laughs> yeah. so that um, we would allow for a lot more creativity. I, I get to, um, to listen to a lot of creative entrepreneurial ministry leaders uh-huh. and learn from them, fortunately in my job and, I hear a lot of frustration from many of them about how they're what they're called to do is stymied by old structures. Yeah. Yeah. You can yeah. relate. Yeah, I can relate. I just, I'm, I'm just so refreshed hearing you talk because that's so much of what I experience and see this just fear of failure. And just in my experience, like trying something new, doing something outside the box, just you're going to fail a lot. Like you're going to make more mistakes than, than not. You're going to have more misses than hits. And uh, so I, I love it. Um, what theologian or historical figure would you want to meet or bring back to life? Yeah. So for me, I think in this moment, especially right now, that would be Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. Um, I think I think we are missing his voice and his leadership in America in a lot of powerful ways. But, um, and and I just want to highlight a couple of things. I mean, one of the things that Dr. King did so beautifully was to, to call America to be its best self, but Mm -hmm. out of really a Christian, his own Christian understanding and in the practices of nonviolent um, protests that he, with such discipline, um, you know, uh, led so transformationally so effectively in the civil rights movement. I think we're in a moment now where there's so much work that hasn't been done that needs to be, to be done to realize the vision that he had. Mm-hmm. And yet I don't see on, in the American sphere, at least the kind of uh, theological leadership that he brought. There's no one else who is, who is, um, is doing what he was able to do by leading from his Christian faith mm-hmm. and, um, and and really um, bringing a struggle for justice that was so long overdue and so urgent. Yeah. And I think right now we see um, a lot of um, really great, you know, I think God-led energy, right, for justice. Yeah. Um, but but it's now so secularized, and in, and sadly, I think that it's also now become so divisive politically yeah. in this environment. Whereas I think King, as much as he you know, called America to face tough realities and did spark good conflict. He also was fundamentally a reconciling figure. And um, I'd love to learn from him. How do we navigate this moment in American life? What do you think history will remember us for in this time and place? I think we're seeing the kind of last gasp of 
a bunch of um, ideas and institutions mm-hmm. as there is um, something new is is coming forth and and I think we'll see I, I, I see a lot of fatigue right now in, yeah. in American life and institutions yeah. and leadership and and that's in the church and the secular political even world as well. families i think yeah I think, yeah i think so many people are just so exhausted of this whole thing right exactly and so i think i think we're, we're we've been living in an unsustainable pattern yeah yeah and it's not clear what the new pattern will be yet we haven't figured it out yeah um and i think that's we'll look back and we'll say wow that was a crazy hinge period in American history hmm. of which there have been many where things were sort of exhausted and unsettled and it wasn't clear, you know, what, but again, the seeds of that new future are already present. We just need to discover them. Yeah. I love your kind of like positive energy and vision there. Well, where can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah. Well, so, um, so I have a, I do have a, um, a website. It's just DwightShiley.com and you can go there. Um, Dwight and then the last name is Z S C H E I L E.com. And, um, you know, I've, I've got a number of books that, um, speak that kind of fill out more of some of these ideas. Mm -hmm. I think for, for a lot of folks, the, um, I love that you're talking about the the importance of making mistakes. Um, one of my books, the agile church, talks a lot about about the the power of good mistakes oh yeah you need to make um so yeah and then i also just invite people to um to visit uh faithlead.luthersem.edu and that's our faith lead platform that just has tons of digital resources and and um stories and and opportunities and ways to connect in the community with other leaders who are trying to figure out what it means to innovate faithfully in this moment yeah, and and I'll just reemphasize this. Like, Dwight's work here is no joke. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think I said this already. Hopefully, did I drop this joke? But like, innovation and mainline church does not always go together. So it's some good work happening here. I'll try to drop the uh, I'll try to drop the link to your article in the show notes. Just to a word to our listeners: do not print it out because they received quite a lot of comments and uh, you don't want to print out all those comments. So hopefully stirred some good conversation uh, among your readers. And uh, I certainly enjoyed reading it. And I really appreciate your time. So uh, may God's peace be with you. Thanks so much, Lauren. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks and go in peace.